Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome you to the LNG shipping sector panel. My name is uh, John Cripps, and I'm a partner in the ship finance team at Stevenson Harbour in London. And at Stevenson Harbour, we've been, we have a long history of working across the LNG sector, uh, the LNG shipping sector, whether that be on new building contracts, uh, charter parties, uh, claims and disputes, or in my case, on, on the financing side. And, and personally, I've been working on the financing of LNG carriers, FSIUs and other assets in the sector since the start of my career. So I'm very excited to, to moderate this panel, um, and we've got a, a great group of uh, panellists to provide their insights of what is an interesting time in the sector. I'll let each of them introduce themselves. So perhaps if we go down the line and start with you, Mark. Hi, my name is Mark Trizopoulos. I work at Moran Gas. Uh, Moran Gas is part of the Anglicosia Shipping Group. Uh, we are a private ship owner, a family-run business, now in the third generation and led by Maria Angelicusis. Uh, we operate in three sectors, uh, the dry bulk, tanker and LNG sector. Uh, on the LNG side, which is what we're here to discuss today, we have 44 vessels on the water, one FSRU and 11 LNG carriers on order. Um, we were set up in 2003 to be the LNG operating arm of the group, and we've had a steady and rapid growth, as has the whole segment. Um, and for us, we believe that natural gas is vital to the energy transition. I think it was covered in the previous presentation very well. And as such, LNG shipping is going to be just as important. Thank you for having me. Uh, good morning. I'm Panos Mitru. I'm the Global Gas Segment Director for Lloyd's Register and I'm dealing with our strategy, portfolio of services, and the overall experience in, in the gas sector. So as such, we're dealing, I'm dealing a lot with LNG, the LNG markets, LNG technology, and LNG carriers and their fleet development. So I'll be happy to share my views as well. Hi, good morning to all. My name is Eduardo Maranhão. I'm the CFO of Golar LNG. Golar has been uh, very well known in the shipping industry for quite some time. Uh, we have undergone uh, a number of uh, different uh, asset divestments over the last 18 months, and uh, the company has changed quite a bit. Nowadays, we are very much focused on FLNG development, and I'll, I'll be very happy to talk a bit more about that today. Good morning. Uh, my name is uh, John Boots. I'm with uh, Cool Company. Cool Company is a newly established uh, LNG carrier. It's an existing uh, business that we uh, that was spun off from uh, from Golar, uh, but with a new uh, group of shareholders. Golar still uh, in our capital structure for roughly 30%. Uh, Eastern Pacific Shipping, a well-known uh, private shipping company, uh, has an ownership in us for 40%, and 30% is listed on the stock exchange since. Um, February this year. So very uh, strong shareholders, one of the youngest uh, independent uh, fleets uh, in the in the space. Uh, our you know company is is obviously new. Uh, we have you know strong growth ambitions in the um, in the space, and we can do that very opportunistically with uh, with our shareholders. Um, in terms of you know growth, we would be looking at uh, you know for, uh, consolidation, um, and uh, that would only be if we can high grade uh, high grade the fleet. 
uh, we focus on a, a balanced portfolio of uh, shorter term and longer term uh, contracts and that's that will be the uh, philosophy uh, going forward I've been and I started with the company uh, back in April back to you uh, John thanks very much everyone so so we can fit as much in as we can I'll, I'll jump straight in um, as I say, it's, it's a very interesting time in the sector, um, a combination of the tragic events in the Ukraine and the wider geo geopolitical landscape have led to an incredibly tight market uh, and unprecedented rates being discussed and, and reported. And so I wanted to start by reflecting on some of the events that have led to the current state in the market. Um, so Mark, if we can start with you to, to give it, kick us off with, with your thoughts on, on, on where we are in the market and, and the key events that have have driven us to that. Sure. I mean, for where we are today, it's something that was repeated earlier today. It was purely because of a lack of underinvestment in the LNG shipping space. It's not just been driven by the current situation in Ukraine. I mean, they started back in 2017. Uh, there were only 20 or so orders back then. And as most of the people who were actually within the LNG shipping space saw that in, 20, in their estimations, 2020, 2021 would be tight shipping. Now, as the years progressed and we got closer, this seemed to be coming true. And then COVID hit in 2020, that most of the world went into lockdown. And this kind of masked the shortage there was in the energy transportation space. Um, so what happened, uh, what happened there was we had 175 US cargoes canceled, uh, and that has a huge impact on the market. Uh, we had some spot ships in the market at that time. It didn't seem as the market it should have been as poor as it was, but sentiment in the world and around energy and around decarbonization really put a, a negative spin on, on, on where the market, where the correct market supply balance should be. Now, as we've progressed and come out of lockdown and we see the energy demand has picked up to where we've been again, we're now dealing with that aftershock. But also 2020 had an, ended up being a year where there was very little investment in new capacity for LNG ships, and for the reasons I just described. And now we haven't yet hit that point, and that's going to be 23 or 24. So um, this situation of a tight LNG shipping market, we kind of see it, it's going to, it's going to progress. The, the, the war in, the, in Ukraine was a tipping factor, but it's maybe it's even unmasking uh, an LNG shipping market which would be even tighter than it would had it not taken place. Because as was discussed before, the majority of the cargoes were expected to be going from Europe, uh, from uh, the US to, to the Far East. That's significant ton miles. Now the majority of cargoes due to the energy crisis are going to Europe. Yes, we talk about ton days now because it's, there's a lot of cargoes we're waiting around to discharge, but it doesn't make up for the difference. So while the product market is extremely tight and rates are very, are, and levels are very high, on the shipping market, I think, in our view, it's actually lower than it would have been otherwise. So that's, that's quite an interesting uh, um, analogy, I think, um, a discrepancy between the two. So I think what we are and uh, where we see the market going forward now, we see this shift is that people need to focus a little bit more on, on the longer term because they need to make investment decisions which will cover 10, 15, 20 years. Thank you. And, and I also wanted to uh, uh, go to you, Eduardo, on, on, on this one. Um, 
to give us a perspective on the floating LNG production uh, market and how the, the current state of, of, of the LNG market and gas prices has, has impacted the market. No, absolutely, John, and I think I fully agree with Mark on that one. So I think we all have to remember that uh, the LNG market was very tight even before the events in Ukraine. So if you look at the LNG prices before the end of last year, they were higher than what they are today. So I think uh, the, the war and everything that happened there really accelerated uh, something that was already coming. And what we see today, and I think uh, that's why FLNG will play an even greater role going forward, is a, a very strong need to secure supplies. So energy security is really the biggest theme nowadays. Uh, initially, when everything happened in Ukraine, we saw a, a big scramble from uh, European countries to secure uh, LNG import capacity. So you saw a number of different countries uh, setting up FSRU terminals or import terminals. Uh, but that's pretty much what happens when you let politicians run uh, energy uh, policies, because in the end of the day, they forgot that uh, it, it does not only require an LNG terminal, you need to secure the LNG molecules as well. So first there was a scramble to secure import capacity. Now what we're seeing is uh, also a, a rush and a very strong desire to secure LNG volumes. And again, energy security will be a very important theme in that sense. So we believe that uh, FLNG, as I said, will, pay a, uh, will, will play a greater role in that sense. First of all, FLNG will offer a very quick alternative to secure or to supply uh, solid volumes to the market. It will be cheaper to, to develop as well. So whereas if you look at the onshore liquefaction capacity in excess of $1,000 per ton of uh, LNG produced, you can be producing at 50, 60% of that cost if you go for an FLNG solution. And I think another important point, which sometimes it gets a bit overlooked, is the fact that uh, you also need to have diversification of suppliers as well. It's simply, uh, it's not the, the most recommended alternative to switch from, a, let's call it a Russian gas, simply to uh, an energy matrix which would be heavily reliant on the US. So I think uh, the fact of uh, new suppliers coming into the market, FLNGs will be a tool to allow those new suppliers to, to provide those new volumes into the market. Thank you. And, and turning from the, the state of the market on the, um, the demand side, I, I want to start looking at the, the supply side. We obviously have a, a, a huge, um, well, very large and increasing order book uh, for LNG carriers. Um, well, you, you've touched on the underinvestment. Um, so I guess what, what I wanted to look at next was, was uh, how we see um, the, the, the new building vessels coming into the market impacting that. Uh, and how the limited availability of slots that we have in the market, so uh, limiting um, uh, capacity for, for further new buildings in the coming years, um, impacting owners. So I guess turn it to you, John, how, how you see that impacting things, uh, how you, you're approaching fleet expansion, and, and I know you, you touched on consolidation in your, your opening statement, whether you see things as a, as a driver for consolidation in the market. Yeah, so, um, you know, we've seen quite some orders in the last uh, uh, several years, and uh, we've seen prices gone up from 180 to 190 to today 250, 250 plus. 
So I think, um, yes, we have a lot of ships on order, probably 40% of the global fleet. Uh, we'll talk about it in a little bit from now about you know, steamboats, how they fit in. It looks optically very high, um, but I think uh, going forward, the current prices will have a dampening effect on, uh, on, on new orders. I, th I think that will definitely uh, happen. Um, if you look at the, you know, the past 15, 20 years or so, the LNG shipping has grown at an at a gecker of 6%. So that means every, you know, in the next 10, 11 years, especially if you listen to the story that we've, we've heard before from the prior speaker, uh, the 6% will happen in, in the near future. So that means you need a doubling, you need a doubling of the fleet. Um, so uh, there is a lot of, uh, on, the, on the supply side, a lot of molecules uh, that are coming our way, especially in 26, a lot of projects that will be, uh, will be uh, completed. So you could, you, know, you could argue about supply demand in the near term, whether you know, that is slightly mismatched or whether it is a shortage, but, but longer term, that I think there will be an enormous uh, demand for, uh, for, for LNG ships. Um, the other main reason that I don't think we'll see, you know, a, a, at least based on our information, with the rates that, we, that are currently being quoted for 15, 20 year contracts, uh, because, because, you know, you don't want to order a $250 million vessel without, you know, ideally without a major uh, um, uh, a contract. The current rates are not really supportive of uh, $250, $260 in, in new builds. So, I think I think we'll, there will be a bit of a, a bit of a slowdown. Plus, as you mentioned, capacity is, is within the shipyards is somewhat uh, somewhat limited. Thank you. And I know, having had the discussions we've had, uh, Panos, um, your your view on how you see the, the supply demand balance going forward, and, and how, how you see that order book impacting the fleet and and the requirement for, for new LNG carriers. I mean, I'm guessing the answer will be also on the scrapping side that we don't foresee that and, and, and that you know, the, the rates and, and the demand will push out the age of, of, of older ships. But um, you know, also, I guess, any, any predictions you have on that side of things as to how the, the global fleet will develop? Yeah, so the, the, the LNG carrier segment is a far more challenging segment. Uh, I will I will focus on the supply side, uh, excuse me, the, the, ship, the shipyard supply side. So uh, it, it's quite challenging building an LNG carrier. So we only had four yards across the world dealing with this uh, a few months ago. But uh, what we see as a shock, a demand shock, uh, pushed more players in the market to try to develop the, the know-how and the ability to build LNG carriers. Uh, what we see is that uh, the shipyard capacity side had no feeling of what could be a shock in liquefaction. And this is what we're going through. And by 25, 26, liquefaction plants uh, planned to, to be delivered and commissioned today uh, will not be able to be catered by the shipbuilding capacity that we have for LNG carriers. 
So uh, we see the numbers, and it, it was not only ourselves. Uh, there were other players in the market who saw, like GTD, for example, who saw that uh, there was a, a substantial lack of ships in order to cater for the additional liquefaction capacity that was planned. Today, we cannot even meet the requirements for new ships based on growth projected. We will soon need to deal with the renewal aspect of existing ships. Um, and as mentioned earlier, there is uh, an issue about regulation that I think we're going to have the chance to discuss further. But it's true there are 400 ships uh, or more uh, belonging to different technology generations, not the latest one uh, with two-stroke engines. But I would say that even for two-stroke latest generation ships, we are going to see problems in the future. That's a very warming, warning uh, sign from, from, from our side. Uh, the truth is, under the pressure of the market, we are doing the repeat designs, as uh, uh, a partner of us mentioned. We are doing repeat designs for years. We don't have the the, the ability to push the yards and the technology providers for uh, more uh, uh, for more progressed designs. And uh, the fact is that based on the lead time we have today, we will be building, most probably we will be delivering the same spec that we discussed in 2018, but we're talking about deliveries in 2026, 2027. So for 10 years, the ships have practically been the same. Um, with the only exception of uh, an improvement on the engine design, which is, I'm afraid, not an improvement, because there's a different technology out there which was already doing better, especially on the methane emission side. So uh, we see that, the, obviously, there is a demand shock. There is a super cycle there. It's not, it's not a usual cyclical thing. Uh, the, LNG, the LNG sector, I'm talking about not, not just about gas, but LNG in particular, due to the geopolitics and what has happened, is growing and growing fast. We are going to see quite uh, a, a number of additions in terms of liquefaction uh, during this decade. Shipbuilding capacity was never ready to deal with a shock like this, so we're going to have supply-demand issues. Uh, the, key, the key alarming sign from our side is that under this pressure we're building practically the same, the same technology, and we use the same technology for ships for years now, a decade, and this is going to lead to problems most probably soon after the delivery of these ships. So this is something that worry, worries us a lot. And we'll, we'll, we'll come on to, the, uh, to, the, to that, that point in the decarbonisation. I, I guess in terms of the sort of you know, fleet development and, and um, um, new projects, uh, Eduardo, I also just wanted to, to turn to you. I mean, see the, the size and, and the, the, the nature of the fleet on, on the floating uh, LNG production side is different, but uh, the drives the same and we're seeing a lot of new projects under development um, so I'd be interested to hear from you and, and I think you've, you've touched on it already but how you see this um, uh, this, this market developing 
and whether you see the, sort of, you know, the, the barriers to entry and the high capital costs, meaning it's, it, it's an area that will remain dominated by a limited number of players, or, or, or whether you see that um, changing? Sure. So first of all, we don't believe that uh, the FLNG market will be uh, a market dominated by very few players. So I think uh, we see that uh, there will be other players coming into this sector in the future. Uh, you have definitely a very strong barrier to, to new entries, which is the fact that uh, one FLNG unit uh, is a multi-billion dollar investment. And uh, also the fact that uh, due to the nature of the operations, it's very challenging it's not impossible, but it's very challenging for you to go 100% on spec on a new build unit or even on a conversion unit. So you have to suit the vessel, you have to suit the unit to according to the, to the gas specifications of a particular field or a particular project. So I think that in, in a way, it really restricts the number of uh, new players. Uh, I think one fact, one issue that we're seeing nowadays is uh, yard constraint. So, especially when you're dealing for new builds, which are units that will take longer uh, to, be, to be built, uh, yard constraint is definitely an issue nowadays. So I think we have a dual approach to that, uh, to that challenge, which is the fact that we can either do conversions of an existing carriers into FLNGs, or we can opt for new builds. So I think the conversion path is something that offers a very quick uh, route for, for new FLNG capacity to be brought to market. Uh, and when you look, for example, into our own fleet, uh, the two units that we have built, the first one in operation and the second one, which is almost ready, uh, they were conversions of existing carriers. And we also have another vessel which is suited for, for a conversion. But we have different uh, kind of a designs which we can adapt according to a particular field need. So I think in the end of the day, the art capacity is a constraint, but you have ways to address it. Thank you. And uh, just to sort of jump back, I guess, Panos, to the, the, the point you were mentioning, um, the next topic I, I wanted to address was, was, was decarbonisation. It's, it's something that we've heard about um, throughout the morning, and uh, we continue to hear about it at, um, at uh, these kind of events. Uh, over the years, it, it remains a, a huge topic. Um, but you, you've, you've mentioned uh, you know, some of the, the, the issues on, on the LNG side in terms of uh, the, the new vessels and, and how the, you know, the vessel designs have, have remained constant. I, I guess the question then for you is how, how you see the market addressing uh, the decarbonisation issue and, and how, how you, you see the methane emission um, issue being addressed. And, and, and whether I think you know, when we spoke earlier, you know, you talked about the, the wider, wider solutions in the shipping market in terms of carbon recycling as well, as whether you see those as being the solutions. Yeah, thank you, John. So I, I think that based on the figures we see, um, one way out could be to increase shipbuilding capacity. Um, as I said, LNG carrier shipbuilding is a very challenging story. So uh, we we see more and more yards getting into this business, but uh, the the numbers we are looking for cannot be tackled uh, by the addition of yards now trying to develop this capability. Uh, we are missing a substantial number of ships, so. On the other hand, we have uh, 
the CII and other regulations come, and it's not just the CII by all means, it's the ETS, the fuel EU, and what's going to follow at, at an IMO level. So we have, from now on, we will only be having more regulation, not, not less. So uh, the, the idea is that the current fleet, especially the first and second generation technology generations of ships, will have problems and issues to face. Uh, based on the supply-demand, very challenging balance that we see today, it's impossible, based on societal needs, to get rid of those ships. So, shipbuilding capacity is almost saturated. We cannot expect more from that side. Withdrawing from our climate com compliance uh, commitments is most probably also out of the question. The only way out is technology development. This is where we focus. And I, I heard earlier uh, the comment about retrofits and the fact that yeah, it's very challenging to retrofit a ship that was, has not been built for a purpose. But the truth is we don't have any other option. Um, I think the LNG sector shows the way what's going to happen we will simply realize that when we will finally decide to order ships, there will be no slots available. All slots will vanish too quickly. So the only way out that we see is to focus on the current fleet and try to save and prolong the life of those ships by investing in their compliance. And to make that happen, we need more technology, we need the right technology, and we need to focus and invest on the development of the technology. And for LNG carriers in particular, we have, for example, solutions like reliquifaction or air lubrication, but on a more, let's say, um, ambitious intervention, I would mention methane abatement. What can we do to make those vessels methane-proof vessels, which is going to be a very challenging uh, bet, but uh, a very, uh, I, I would say, a life or death issue for the ships. And the second issue, of course, is CCS, carbon capture on board. This is also a great hope, a great prospect for uh, extending the life of the ships and the use of the ships and perhaps becoming more flexible on how we invest on ships so that this uncertainty risk that keeps us away from taking a step for decarbonization today will be out of the way. Thank you. Um, and I guess with the backdrop of the, uh, the challenges we have and, and, and that need for, for technology, um, you know, I, I guess, Mark, I just want to turn to you to get the, the perspective from, from, from an operator. You, you, you agree with Palace's views? Are, are there particular things you're looking at on, on, in the decarbonisation decarbonization space for your, your vessels? Yeah, sure. I think from our point of view is the way we see the market right now, I mean, I think everybody agrees that if we use more natural gas versus coal, that's much better for the environment. Right now we have, you know, CII coming in on 1.123 and it's, what's it going to do? It's going to reduce the capacity of sh shipping energy carriers. Yes, it's going to have a small benefit on those ships by decreasing their carbon footprint, but we're missing the bigger picture when it comes to that. And 
in our view, it seems that all of shipping has been lumped together in, in, in one basket, and we need to look at each segment separately and, and address the, the needs that are there. Um, you know, as Panos mentioned, the, the steam fleet is about a third of the existing global fleet right now in the energy carrier space. Even if you add in all the new buildings which are in order, uh, you know, you're then probably down to 20, 25%. That's a huge number. And if you're talking about replacing those ships with new ships, again, that has a big carbon footprint. So the question is, what can we do to, you know, as Bano said, to prolong the life of the existing fleet? And also, this will have a big impact on the market players because it's going to allow charters, it's going to allow owners to make investment decisions based on the full life of the, of the product that they're talking about. I mean, right now, the biggest problem that we see everybody having in the market is, okay, we can look at the next five years, maybe 10, but after that, what happens? From an LNG owner's perspective, that means you've, you know, you've, got, you've got a ship which is, its life is 20 or 25 years. That's a, big, that's a big question mark. And so the more security people can have around being able to make decisions today without thinking, okay, well, actually, regulations are going to change in three years again, so who knows? Is the ship I'm ordering today going to already be dated three years after the delivery? That's a lot of money to, to be throwing down the drain. So it makes investment decisions very difficult. I think from, from our point of view, all that we've managed to do is, is, is work with, uh, with the different companies within the industry to, to try and find ways to reduce our, our emissions. On all of our new buildings, uh, we went after ships which had the, the, lowest, uh, the lowest emissions when it came to carbon and methane. We installed shaft generators, we installed ALS, um, and this helps. We haven't seen anybody really willing to pay the differential that it cost us to do it, but you know, that's an investment that we're making just to be more protected on, on the back end of when the ships need the second part of their life. So. Thank you, and a huge challenge. Um, the next topic I wanted to, to, to uh, move on to, given that we're um, Capital Link and we have two CFOs on our panels, is, is access to capital uh, within the sector. Um, LNG uh, shipping has, has remained popular with banks and, and in, in the wider capital markets. Stevens and I have been involved on things like private placements. We've seen the growth of, of uh, leasing in, in the LNG ship, uh, sector. Uh, and more in recently interested in Jolcos and, and other uh, French tax leasing. Um, we've also seen outside investment in the sector. So I guess I, I'd be interested to hear from, from you, first of all, John, um, how you see uh, access to capital uh, changing given the, uh, the current environment within the LNG market and the wider microeconomic environment, and if you do see it changing. And, and how you see that impacting on, on your business? Yeah, <clears throat> I think uh, traditionally uh, this ship, the shipping business has been financed by what, you, what you're saying, by the bank financing, by Jolcos, by Salesbacks. Salesbacks have been very, uh, very popular for a while. I don't see that necessarily changing um, near term. I think that will, given given the state of the LNG market, uh, I think that will continue to be uh, to be strong. Um, Banks as well, and uh, I see it, you know, you know, as we speak, because we're working on, on, on something. The 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 real negative that we have seen in the past, you know, six to nine months is that the floating rate has significantly increased. Uh, most of these bank deals are done on floating rates, 
So if you if you fix that, you you, you go back to a more you know historical uh, margin. If you add the margin to the to the fixed uh, sofer of call it six percent or you know more one percent plus or minus. So um, that leads you to believe that that at some point we will need to start looking at the bond market as well. For instance, in in Oslo, I don't think it's competitive yet. But I mean, when when we did the deal in February, we had a, a sofa of 50, 60 basis points plus a margin of 275. That's hard to compete with in any financing market. But you know, today fully swapped, it's you're talking about six percent. So. Um, so I think it will actually, you know, it, it, it's it's a negative on the one hand, but it does open up opportunities for other financing vehicles, albeit at a high price. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Net net. And Eduardo, our CFO, I'd be interested to hear how whether you see that differing on the floating LNG production side, how you see that the, the, you know, the financing structures changing as well for the new projects coming online. Sure. So when it comes to FLNGs, I think uh, there are some key considerations to, to be made here. So first of all, we see a strong appetite from Asian banks and Asian lenders to fund uh, those projects. I mean, the fact that uh, most of the yards are in Asia also is also uh, definitely something that helps. Uh, but one key difference from uh, when we look at uh, FLNGs to simply looking at a pure shipping fleet or an LNG carrier fleet is the fact that uh, most of the lenders, they look at FLNG as project finance. So the need of having a firm of take agreement on some sort of a visibility on the long term of take of such a project is something that really differentiates the European lenders to the Asian lenders. So I think we have seen uh, currently in the market that uh, the Asians, they have a strong appetite or a stronger appetite to fund uh, those projects on an asset basis. So uh, looking uh, on a loan-to-value uh, uh, approach as opposed to simply looking at uh, what is the, the profile or how does the offtake agreement looks like uh, over the life of the contract, I think is something that really gives us a much more flexibility to deal with those uh, lenders as opposed to dealing with the traditional shipping banks. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to FNG, this is something that gives us, as I said, a very strong hand when it comes to, to the commercial side of the, of the project. So it allows us a greater degree of flexibility and also the, the, the ability to wait uh, up until we actually progress much more into the construction phase of the project and as we approach uh, commercial operations to really secure uh, a long-term offtake agreement. So I think this is the fact that really differentiates the pure LNG shipping fleet to uh, an FLNG kind of a financing. Thank you, and I, I'm slightly conscious that we're, we're running out of time, but I, I also wanted just to sort of turn to um, the, you know, the, the medium and longer term outlook um, and, and how um, we see the sort of current develop, developments impacting the market more generally uh, in terms of the, how rates are impacting charter strategy, chartering strategy, um, uh, how, how you, you view the current rates moving and, and how you, you see trading patterns uh, changing as, uh, as you know, there's increased uh, demand for, for seaborne LNG in, in Europe. Um, so perhaps, Mark, maybe we could just start with you, with your, your sort of, um, perhaps even just sort of 
Christopher will get full gazing for the future in terms of you know how you see the market developing, how you see uh, rates moving, and, and what perhaps you see as the sort of challenges um, aside from the supply demand balance and, and decarbonisation that we, we've talked about. Well, I, I left my crystal ball in Athens, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know one thing that we've seen in the energy market. This is a second winter, second consecutive winter that it's happening. Right now, you have no more independent owners who are trading vessels in the market. The independent owner acts as kind of a counterbalance to the project player, the energy major. You know, they're on the different sides of, of, of the equation. One's long, the other's short. Now, right now, we're in a market where we see and rates are reported. Some are even ours, even though they're not under our control. <laughs> um, so, and, and this happens, I mean, this is, this is a function of the way the market has developed. And now you have different players who are, all have the same position. So they're all short at the same time or they're all long at the same time. And this is what we've seen in the last few cycles, an extreme amount of volatility. And every time that happens, it goes through the roof. And right now, if the steam rates are at $200,000 per day, TFD is $350,000, $400,000 a day, that's still not as high as it can go. And that can be quite a scary thought of when you're talking about availability of supply. I mean, we're, LNG carriers are the pipeline to move natural gas across the world. Now, we need to make sure that there are vessels to do that, and we need to make sure there are vessels to do that in a safe manner and not trying to just get through this day by day and figure out what's going to happen tomorrow. It's a long-term game. It needs patience. It needs partners who can work together, figure out the best way forward. And we do see that, and we do see that with, with our customers and with our suppliers as well, that there is a desire to move forward and to move forward in the most efficient manner. The, I think the, the, the concern that we have is that we don't want to just be forced to move somewhere which to pivot in a direction which doesn't actually have a real benefit. Thank you. Conscious of the time, but I, I was going to turn to you, John, as well, just to see if you had anything to, to you wanted to add. Yeah, you know, it, it's the, the, what you say, Mark. The rates are what they are, right? Uh, um, that just the the, the the factor of balance uh, of a supply imbalance in the market. But what, for instance, what you see with with, with China, a perfect example is that you know in in, in 2021. China took a lot, lot was a big off-taker of U.S. gas and, you know, didn't need it all and benefited from arbitration prices and shipped it to Europe, right? A couple of, two days ago, they basically said to the three, you know, major uh, oil and gas companies, no more subletting to, uh, to Europe, right? So it's very short-term, uh, very short-term thinking by, by, but not only by oil companies or traders, trading companies, but also by governments, right? So that's that's really uh, scary, as Mark uh, Mark was saying. So what we currently see in the short term, in, you know, in the market is, uh, um, you know, with the Ukraine war, you saw actually the, the ton mileage coming down, shorter distances. Uh, and that's kind of. Uh, reversing in a way that you have more idle time right now. In September, I think there were 33 LNG carriers uh, used as uh, storage, so they weren't really moving. Um, you have inefficiencies uh, with offloading the uh, the LNG at the uh, import terminals. So there's a lot of lot of moving moving parts uh, effectively. So you know, and within yeah, within Coolco, we you know for maybe for the wrong reasons because of the war, of course, and um, but we have you know we have some open ships, uh, so we uh, uh, 
soon, so we hopefully we can we can help the uh, our our clients to you know to move uh, to move some of the loads. Um, but it's it, it's it certainly is a very volatile and, and uncertain times. Long term, I think it's you know Europe will never be want to be dependent on Russia the way they were. I mean that is to me that that's not going to happen. So it will be a lot lower reliance on, uh, on, on, on Russia, for, for sure. I mean, it's too much politi uh, political risk. So. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just looking at the clock. I think we're, we're, we're out of time. I'm just to see whether we, we have time for questions or whether we should wrap it up and, and let people come and find our panelists in uh, afterwards. I think maybe we should have the panelists. Yeah, well, I've, of course, of course. Well, apologies for, for running, and uh, I'd like to start by yeah, thanking you all, um, Mark, Eduardo, John, and Panos, and, and thank you all for, for listening. Thank you very much. Thank you.